Good morning, campers. Good morning, campers. Today's activities include uh, just going to see a musical. It's going to be a hit, won't it? Uh, lunch today will be whiskey in a coated glass. And to end the night, we will be fighting to the death. Well, no, we won't be fighting to the death. You bitch. You absolute bitch. And I'm going to push you down these <laughs> stairs. Ugh. Imagine I just continue that for a comedically long time. <laughs> Where do we get this very long staircase from? <laughs> this, this movie has the longest staircases in the world. Great. And oh, doy, it's my line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into Death Becomes Her. Thundercrack, lightning, it's spooky month. Death Becomes Her. You know what? It wasn't before watching this episode that I, uh, this movie, I finally clicked into what the title means. Because for years oh, I was like... You thought she was like, I, I am become like, death? She does, yeah, she doesn't become death. And then it was like <laughs> within the last week that I went, oh, they mean like rhinestones become her. Yes. It was fabulous. So, God, God damn it. Anyway, death becomes her. Marishka Hargate, Sarah. Marishka Hargate, Sam. I am your camp counselor, Sam, pro bodybuilder in training, experiencing a lot of body dysmorphia this week, coupled with imposter syndrome, and current drag queen. And I'm camp counselor, Sarah. Makeup is pointless. And we're here to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. Yes, we are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. You want to talk overlooked and queer? Yeah. This I'm 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 just going to put I'm going to drive my shovel firmly into the ground and say right now this is the queerest movie we have ever covered. We have covered queer movies. This is the queerest straight movie. But they are movie. not as queer as Darth Becomes Her. This is the queerest straight movie that we've ever covered. That I think that's that's the thing there. Like, holy shit. Zemeckis, what no. did you do? You knocked this out of the park. No, I, I honestly believe this. I think that this movie speaks to um, uh, queer existence in a way that gay movies don't. I think that um, the way this movie talks about like disgust with your own body and impossible desires achieves something much um, deeply, much more deeply queer than something like, uh, but I'm a cheerleader does. Not to say that that's bad or that that's better than, but I'm a cheerleader. I'm just saying, I feel like this is like, Oh, this is this is something deep and dark and ugly. Mm, yeah, this is this is the the. I mean, this is body dysmorphia. The movie, yes, actually, absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. Um, God, oh yeah, and what a weird week to do that with for me. 
<laughs> so. Yeah. Um, I guess we should just give a warning. This is going to be uh, an episode entirely about body dysmorphia um, and disorders like that. So if you don't feel ready for that, please um, don't listen to this episode. But you are particularly going through some right now because of your your changes. You're going through a special time in a boy's life. Yeah, I'm going through menopause. And <laughs> why is it called menopause? You never mena started. Yeah, why is it called menopause when it's a full fucking stop? Um, <laughs> no, so I'm I all right. L- I'll look behind the curtain and then behind another curtain to find just my stuff. I'm having this weird thing happening now, where you know I'm progressing. You know, I'm I'm working out. Uh, a really good example would be like Tuesday. We did legs. With, I did legs mm-hmm. with my coach. And, you know, he, he sets up the bar and he puts you know, weight. Well, I, I set up the bar and put weight on. He tore his pec, so uh, and, uh, he's not lifting any weights yeah. per se at the moment. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. And, you know, pops a bunch of weight on. And he's like, cool. Now just um, do that for 20 reps. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And so I get under it and pick it up. And it's, you know, it's like 200 something odd pounds. And I just go to town, and I'm up, down, up, down, up, down. I'm going astagrass, but really smooth motions and continuous motions of just up, down, up, down, 20 reps, on and on and on. And mm-hmm. I get to the end of it, and I rack it up, and I'm like, whew, that was good. And you know, l- later on, we're talking about it, and he's like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, that what you did was real fucking good. And I'm like, uh, I'm... I'm sorry, what? I thought I was just doing a thing that lots of other people can do and better than me. He's like, no, no, you're you're good at this. And so I'm having like a reverse <laughs> body dysmorphia where I'm seeing the changes that I'm oh. making and I'm noticing all the things I can do. And it's all very positive. And my brain is sitting up in my head going, but you're still a fat kid. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Look, oh. I can see it. <laughs> so... It's like imposter syndrome and body dysmorphia got married and had a horrible child. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just like. And you're then they cheating. cracked that child open and they found the little. Um, um, oh, what's the word? Not hominid. Uh, oh, homunculus, uh, homunculus inside. And you came out and you're like, hello, I'm Sam. <laughs> we're like, you're such a beautiful baby. Yeah, but it's it's weird because usually, you know, body dysmorphia is associated with looking at yourself and going like, and not seeing what it is. Instead, I'm looking at it and I'm seeing what it is and my brain is just disconnecting at the moment still going like, I'm not used to this person. Like, mm-hmm. I'm aware that it is me and I'm aware that, like, I keep seeing changes, not daily, but, you know, like weekly. And I'm like, yeah. shit, when did this happen? And it... It just it's funny watching you post um, progress photos because to me, you're always posting about like, you know, your your shoulders are getting bigger and your legs are getting bigger. And I'm watching, I'm like, how is his waist getting smaller every week? It can't get any smaller. <laughs> and I don't know if it's actually getting smaller or if it's just the, the parts around it getting bigger. And so it looks like it. But it's incredible to see the change. Fun fact, it's both. Ooh. And it's going to get real weird, real weird by April, where all of a sudden it's like, 
Where did this waste come from? Where did this itty bitty thing? How is it holding the rest of me up? But anyway, that's that's my weird brain shit at the moment. And so, yeah, watching this movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can identify with some of this. Except, you know, they're you know, living eternally in, in pseudo-rotting bodies, whereas I'm actively working towards making a better body. A much better, a very large body. <laughs> uh, why does Sam, the largest camp counselor, not simply eat the other? Because I need someone to bounce off so, of. <laughs> I don't think you had seen this movie before, had you? I had seen it once, ages ago. Uh-huh. Probably like 15 years or something like that. And I remember seeing it. And this was pre-me coming out and really embracing all that stuff. And I just kind of went like, huh. Well, that was interesting. And then, you know, put it mm-hmm. out of my mind. And then I'd seen the odd thing here and there. And then, you know, as as I'm coming to embra- came to embrace myself more and more as a queer man, I was like, oh, oh, okay. These scenes that I'm now seeing out of context of the film, I'm like, oh, I get why this is very good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. How about you? I had never seen it. I had heard of it in terms of its special effects. Um, But um, Robert Zemeckis now does not have the um, cachet of the Robert Zemeckis director that we knew growing up. So while there's a lot of Robert Zemeckis movies that I really like and I think are good, um, I, I think... Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like the closest thing to a perfect movie. I really love Back to the Future. Um, I think um, What Lies Beneath is weirdly underrated. Um, I like, I've never been as an adult going, I want to seek out more Robert Zemeckis because I'm like, it's just not what I'm into, you know? Especially since he has changed so much. Um, once he started working in, like, this century. So while, like, a dark comedy starring Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis with a huge queer audience seems like it would be my jam, I just, I think I always thought, yeah, but that's not for me. Which, boy, was I wrong. Boy, howdy, were you wrong. It's got Isabella Rossellini in it. Come on. That's the thing. I had seen the image of her in the necklace in front of the fireplace so many times, and I had no idea it was from this movie. Oh, God. Just talk about the gumption of being like, yeah, sure. Isabella Rossellini. She'll be nude most of the film. Well, basically nude. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. She'll be acting her ass off. Literally. Oh. But I hear tell that you may have some background information for us, perchance. Yes. So I went into this looking for, um, I was like, I'm, I'm going to look at this and just like watch it and see what comes to me, basically, because I had so few ex, um, expectations for the movie. And then I saw the special effects in this movie. <laughs> holy shit 
Um, yeah. Robert Zemeckis is really I, I, known as a director of effects now. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I, I, I told you last week, like, this movie got the biggest attention because of its special effects. Uh, mm-hmm. It wasn't very well received by most audiences and critics. Uh, it domestically made back its budget and internationally it did well but back then they weren't looking at international numbers they were like poo poo other countries they don't matter yeah so the movie did well it made 140 million on a 55 million dollar budget but it only did 58 million domestically and at that time it would have been like oh well that was a flop and ebert and siskel fucking hated it that's so weird to me it's also like a weird time in Meryl Streep's career which I'm going to get into in a second Mm -hmm. but um, I went down a rabbit hole trying to find out everything I could about the special effects in this film Um, and there isn't a ton of it I think because this movie is kind of a cult classic you're not going to find the sort of in-depth stuff on it even though the effects were done by Industrial Light and Magic um, I guess there just wasn't the appeal right away for something like a Star Wars or a Jurassic Park deep dive. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big thing about this is they were done by ILM. Um, Robert Smackis obviously is like really famous for his effects. I would say um, nowadays for like the last 20 years, he's become infamous for his effects because he is very much a style over substance kind of guy now. Yeah. Um, but this is incredible. So the 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 really interesting thing about this is that they are using CGI mapping and blue screens to do stuff that I thought straight up wasn't possible until like ten years later. Like Lord of the Rings, I thought was the was breaking new ground on this, but it was actually Death Becomes Her that managed to do this sort of facial mapping and things like that. So, um, the effects with Meryl with her head on backwards. This is obviously like the biggest, most um, effective special effect in the movie. Do you know how they achieved it? Uh, well, Meryl Streep is a tremendous actress and actually snapped her own <laughs> neck, turned her entire head backwards and said, I'm ready. Yeah, at the end of the film, Goldie Hawn was like, so when are you putting in the dummies? And Meryl Streep said, I will simply fall to the ground and break into eight pieces. That sounds like a dig on Goldie Hawn. That is not. Goldie Hawn's incredible in this movie. Um, Goldie Hawn's so, great in this movie. Yes. Oh, I love her hair in this movie so much. Oh, both of their hair is phenomenal. Like, brava, brava to the makeup team and the hairstyling team because holy shit, like, you, they knocked it out of the park with this. Oh, I gotta say, so when I first watched um, Back to the Future as a kid, um, because I was a small child and legally an idiot, as all small children are, I, <laughs> so the movie starts out, um, 
with the parents in old age makeup, right? And me watching her, I was like, oh, that's the age that the actors are. And then they go back to 1955 and everybody looks so young. And I'm like, wow, it's so weird that they managed to make everybody look so young for so much of the movie. <laughs> it literally didn't uh, occur to me that they cast young people. <laughs> that's so sweet. Oh, honey. Oh, that's so <laughs> But then again... Then again, I was the kid who I remember watching, I think, an episode of uh, Unexplained Mysteries or whatever. And, you know, it's like, or, you know, America's Most Wanted. And they're filming somebody getting kidnapped. And I'm just like, why didn't the camera crew stop them? <laughs> why did they let the bad guys get away? We know where, we know what they look like. <laughs> Not re- realizing reenactments were a thing. <laughs> I when I was a kid I knew I knew that porn films existed and I knew that snuff films existed and I knew that the X rating oh, existed. No. So I thought just like porn films are films where people are having real sex, snuff films are also like a popular genre where people really get killed on screen for real and that porn and snuff were equally popular. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's weird, but there seems to be an audience for it. You know what? Little little Sarah's not going to yuck anyone's yum. <laughs> yeah, I'm out there in 1995 in an oversized tee being like, whatever, love is love. <laughs> and murder uh, is fine if it's for art. <laughs> So for the effects for this, um, what the team at ILM tried to do first is create an, um, basically like a Disney-style animatronic of Meryl Streep. So they did a cast of her face, okay. and you can see footage of this on YouTube where um, they have an ILM technician in sort of the, um, you know, the, the strainer on the head that Rick Moranis is wearing in Ghostbusters with like the, yes. the chin strap? So they have an ILM guy in that sort of getup so he can um, move his face and the animatronic moves in kind. So it's literally, it's not even like they're, they're animating the animatronic or anything like that. It's just, it recognizes that his face is making movements and translates them into the animatronic's face. And he is then um, lip syncing along to Meryl Streep's dialogue so they can make this dummy look as though she's exactly like Meryl Streep. It's really good. It's really, really good. But. Now, the only upsetting part about this is that it is sort of like an ex machina animatronic where the back of her head is <laughs> open to the skull. Sexy. But this is very sexy. Um, they decided that this was actually not good enough. So they decided to go CGI instead. Um, because say what you will about Zemeckis, but he really is a very good technical director. I just wish he would do something other than that. Um, so what they did is storytelling. He did. He did. He used to be really good. He's got like a great comedic touch. Yeah. Then he did a Pinocchio, and we all went meh. Oh my god! I wasn't even thinking of Pinocchio. I, in my head, the latest one was Welcome to Marwin. Which is, like, its own thing. Um, oh, yeah. 
So they did basically what everyone does now, what is basically standard practice in the industry now, is they put Meryl Streep, they put a bag over her head. They put like a blue um, balaclava over her head and she performed all of the walking backwards stunts. And then they put her in a swivel chair in front of a blue screen and said, now you're going to do all the face stuff. And then they glued the face stuff and the body stuff together in post, along with the very first ever CGI skin technique. So all of the stuff with, you know, like chin up, Meryl, collarbone down, Meryl, Everything in between where her neck is twisted around is 100% ILM. Ooh. I shouldn't say 100%. There's a little bit of makeup in there, too, to create that twisty effect in her neck. Um, but that's how they did it. And they did this a year before they did skin textures in Jurassic Park, which I think is crazy because human flesh has got to be a lot harder than making a dinosaur look realistic. You can do whatever you want with a dinosaur. Yeah, ex that that was my thinking too. Like nobody's gonna look at a dinosaur and stay like, oh god, it doesn't look like my dinosaurs back home. <laughs> no, you don't understand. I saw a Velociraptor once, and they don't do that. Just like you know, the most awful pedantic people you know. <laughs> If you don't have any uh, free-range dinosaur skin at home, store-bought is fine. <laughs> if you don't have your own serotonin and dopamine, then store-bought is always fine. Um, but, yeah, stuff that, like, Goldie Hawn sitting through the spear in this, all of this stuff that's uh. totally normal in, like, a, a Marvel cinematic universe nowadays, it, I would argue, it looks better in Death Becomes Her than it does in most movies nowadays. Well, because there's there's care and there's effort put into it as opposed to let's outsource this to this team here, right? Like with this, I'm sure Zemeckis was hands-on for the entire process of like, I want it to look this way. It's got to look like this as opposed to like, all right, I've finished filming it. Here's some notes. Send it to the CGI people who need to unionize. Yes. Absolutely. We support unions in every field of work. Sam is unionized. I, unfortunately, am not. Uh, unions all the way. You need to fix that. I do. Uh, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> so, actually, have I ever told the hitting the lamp uh, anecdote on this film, on this podcast before? Oh, is this the Roger Rabbit hitting the lamp? Yes. Yes, it is. Have I told this on but, the but, podcast? No, I know of it, but I do love the story. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Because I love this. I think it's part of why Roger Rabbit is a masterpiece. Um, so if you guys remember in Roger Rabbit, there's a scene in the bar where there's like a hidden room behind the wall. And Roger and Eddie Valiant go back there and there's a hanging lamp in the middle of the room. And at one point, one of them hits it and the, the lamp swings on its chain, you know, and it's casting shadows all over the room. And you don't think about it as an audience member because it's like, whatever, you know. Um, but then you look at it and go, wait a second, 
they are drawing Roger and they now have to account for the light source in the room bouncing all over the place. So the fact is they did it on purpose to make it look more realistic and to make their jobs look harder. It's almost a flex to say we can have this character who doesn't exist in real life hit the lamp, the lamp's going to bounce all over the place, and you are never for a second going to think, oh, Roger Rabbit looks fake here. Um, I miss those days. <laughs> I miss those days in effects, you know? Uh, what do you mean he doesn't exist in real life? He lives in Toontown. He's married. Wait, uh, another when I was little story. I definitely thought that Roger Rabbit was an existing short cartoon star. Yeah, no, we all did. That 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 was that was the yeah. big flex on all kids that this movie pulled off. And you're just like, why can't I watch Roger Rabbit cartoons? Oh, because <laughs> they don't exist. Now they did make a couple after the movie was so popular, which is part of. Um, why it was so confusing to small children at the time. Uh, not to mention the fact that we were all, as small children, just watching a version of Chinatown that everybody was like, it's got cartoons in it, it's fine for kids. <laughs> kids will understand the socio-political ramifications of building a freeway. Exactly. They definitely won't be horrifically scarred by the end of this movie. Nope, not uh, I, I, I've said before on the show, I was not allowed to watch a lot of stuff when I was a kid, but I was a, allowed to watch Roger Rabbit and I was allowed to watch Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park is um, educational. And uh, they are two of my biggest fears to this day. If you showed me something and said it was dip, I would immediately go backwards. Yeah, I'm I don't care that dip's that. not real. It's deadly yeah. to tunes, and uh, you are a tune at heart. I am a tune at heart. Um, but then you get all of this, the the fallout of this movie. I think number one, I don't think anybody was trying to do what this movie did for quite some time because this movie was considered such a failure. Um, despite being very well loved nowadays, but it's kind of a shame to me because if anything, I'm like, this opened a huge door that I would love to have seen more films experimenting with. Mm. Mm. Now... You're more of a horror person than I am, so you obviously have a better idea of things like... I mean, like, I've seen American Werewolf in um, London? Paris? Which one was the original one? Lo London was the first one. Paris was the ill-conceived pseudo-sequel. And I, yeah. oddly enough, I just watched American Werewolf in London last night. Guess what? That shit holds the fuck up, and it's amazing! It's so good. I watched it as a as a kid where I was like, I don't even like horror movies. And we're like, oh, I don't like any of this. But even then, the effects in that are so good. Actually, it's very, very similar to this in the way the characters decay throughout the film. Mm, yeah. Except that one was directed by an absolute piece of shit. So. 
Oh, yes. Uh, murderer, John Landis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film obviously has a huge queer fan base now um, that absolutely love it. Um, I think it's so funny that we are doing this movie so close after doing Whatever Happened to Baby Jane because these movies are, are spiritually so similar. Mm-hmm. All about like how, how do we treat actresses? What will fame do to a person? What is aging? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. It could just be that both Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and this movie are have such powerhouse actresses in the lead i can definitely picture a backlash to this movie of the women are fighting over men that's not really what this movie is about and i think to see it as that is deliberately um ignoring the point of the film yeah that's that's a bit that's the most shallow reading and I, I can barely then again there are people who did go see Barbie and said it was anti-man so you know <sighs> and I just want to say one last word about the effects before we go um, the the early work on um, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn to make them look quote unquote older quote-unquote unattractive is incredible especially since we've seen both of them age 30 years since this movie came out um so it's really astonishing to me that i look at meryl streep in that and go oh yeah that's just like what meryl streep looks like and then they do the effect and i'm like oh yeah that's what meryl streep used to look like that's incredible um the only thing i would say is I think the women were getting a different makeup artist than Bruce Willis because he looks like shit in this movie. He looks so rough, <laughs> I assumed that he was going to transform at some point, and then he never does. But he's got like this blue cast on his face that they didn't bother to blend with his neck. So it's like, what the? Maybe it's just like the the 4K version or whatever that I was watching, and it wasn't original. It wasn't visible in the original film. But I'm like. Oh man, he he does not look good. He looks like they just blew he baby powder on his rough. face and said, "Yeah, you're fine." Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the one other uh, great notable age up, and wow, that actually looks like the actor aged properly aged up that uh, I've seen. My friends were watching a movie starring Ian McShane. Well, this is from this is from like the seventies, so it's young, sexy you yeah. know, McShane. And at one point, like he goes undercover and he puts on old man makeup. And my friends sent me screen pics of it, and I went, "Yeah, okay." So it's a picture of Ian McShane, and they're like, "No, you don't understand. This is a young, sexy Ian McShane in old man makeup, and it just happens to look like what he actually became. <laughs> it's the <laughs> wildest thing." Yeah. Twice they got it right. It's like Doctor Who um, in the the episode where uh, the Doctor becomes human and ages. So David Tennant had to get an old age makeup. And he said, I looked in the mirror and I was just looking at my father, you know. 
Um, one last thing I want to note before we get into the synopsis of this movie is Meryl Streep's career and Meryl Streep's career at this time. I thought about doing this as background, but it's kind of way too big a discussion point, especially for how much I want to talk about this movie itself. Um, but I would very strongly recommend um, the Be Kind Rewind uh, video on Meryl Streep and why she has had such longevity as a career and part of it is because she has never been seen as a sex symbol. She has always been seen as a serious actress first. Um, this movie came out when she was in her early 40s and uh, what a coinky dink was hitting the first like big rough patch in her career. Something that her career didn't really start to come back until I would say both adaptation and um, Devil Wears Prada. She was in the hours, right? Yeah, she was in the hours. That's two thousand and two or two thousand and three. It's a it's a critically successful movie, but she is not a her big nineties hits. Weirdly enough, are this and Bridges of Madison County. And then she's just kind of in a rough patch for a while, I think, because she doesn't become, like, an old lady, or whatever you want to... Basically, she doesn't become a star again until she's in her mid-50s. Um, I find that very interesting. Well, we all know that. Especially as someone who thinks Meryl Streep is gorgeous. Uh, watch Manhattan, guys. I know it's a Woody Allen movie, but she's incredible in it. Yeah, she's she's awesome. I love seeing Meryl Streep and things. I would like to see Meryl Streep go whole ham like this again in this film. Uh, she, yeah. She doesn't get to play exceptionally broad too often. And this is, this is such a great performance of you want to see her do a whole bunch of range in one movie? Here you go. Death becomes her. Yeah, I think the only other thing that we have that's really like this is probably the Mamma Mia movies. But even then, like, it's not as big. It's her having fun, for sure, for sure, for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's not as big as this. Also, I do want to say about the second Mamma Mia movie, uh, Cher plays her mom. Cher is like six years older than her. So, um... (laughs) I don't know if that's a dig at Cher or a dig at Meryl or a dig at both of them. (laughs) It's a dig at the fact that we cannot stand old women on uh, TV, obviously, or movies. Thank God this is a podcast so that when you age, I can just keep you going. Oh, yes, you'll you'll have me in that vat that Luke's in in Empire Strikes Back with a big diaper podcasting from my goo pit. <laughs> um, Sarah, it's called a back to tank, please. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so terribly <laughs> sorry. <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> Don't worry. I, I did it so that the nerds on the internet wouldn't. Thank you. But that that's also a terrible way to to do things. <laughs> Don't try and get ahead and punish people just because you think it, it'll be easier than the other punishment coming. And that includes yourself, I audience. Will s- Don't self-punish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that goes double for you, Mr. This Is Not My Body. Um, I will say that um, in watching the behind-the-scenes stuff for this, Meryl Streep said... Um, 
said one thing while making the movie and another thing afterwards where she says um, basically she was talking about Bruce Willis and how Bruce Willis is an action star and how he gets to use his body in interesting ways in movies and she normally does not get that kind of role she does not have stuff that requires her to do like weird body stuff whether that's you know something as strange as early blue screen or whether it's walking backwards through stuff you know like Meryl Streep is not somebody you think oh my god she does her own stunts you know um however afterwards she said that basically it was such a technical production that she really really didn't enjoy it she just felt like a cog in the machine um but I always think it's interesting to think of someone like Meryl Streep who were like she can do everything and she's like actually there are some things that nobody ever asks me to do and I would really like to try oh that's sweet Mm -hmm. Especially since, as you said, she's such a great physical comedian in this. Mm -hmm. God, her 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 chops for this. I want to see more Mel Meryl Streep comedies. Let's go. Uh, every every special effect video I watched had the clip of her saying. Ernest, you pushed me down the stairs, and I understand because it's a great <laughs> fucking bit. That's a great fucking line. Anyway, I've gone on too long. Let's talk about the actual movie itself. Let's talk about a movie. Okay, so let me just scroll to the top of this. Scroll, 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 scroll. All right. We open on a rainy Broadway, 1978. Madeline Ashton in Songbird. It says on the marquee of the Fairbanks Theater. And people are coming out of it absolutely hating it. The funny thing about this so, is it's exactly the same opening as the movie Prom, where uh, Meryl Streep is doing a, a terribly considered musical. In that one, she is playing Eleanor Roosevelt. And people are hating it. I just love the synchronicity of that 30 years apart. <laughs> So Meryl is singing a big number on stage. It's an overblown production complete with bellhop backup dancers and a set of stairs. A lot of <laughs> stairs in this movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, lights and camera and a disco kind of number part to it where they do the hustle. It's 1978, so it makes sense. But it's very clear that this sucks because the audience... The movie's telling us it sucks. <laughs> I fucking loved it. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I absolutely adore this. But yeah, the movie is telling us that this sucks because the audience are leaving in droves. They are getting up out of their seats during the number and walking out, which is extra rude to do in the middle of a number. And we see people like sleeping and not paying attention, except for the two members of the audience. Look, it's Goldie Hawn and it's Bruce Willis. And Goldie Hawn is just kind of staring daggers at what's going on on stage. And he is enraptured. Uh, it's just such... Um, it's just such a great shot. He He's not... We were talking before we started recording that Kevin Klein was supposed to be in this role and um, didn't take it because of money issues. Um 
but I think Kevin Klein would be almost too charismatic in this. Bruce Willis is playing him dull as dishwater, which is what you actually need between these two women. Yeah, it's he needs to be a schlub. He needs to be an absolute loser of a man because part of the joy of this movie is the fact that these two divas are fighting over this guy of all people. Yes! Right? And it's not even about him. It's about what he provides, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Right? But, yeah, um, if Kevin Klein had been in it, he would have been charming and he would have had charisma. So then you would go like, oh, I totally get why they would fight for him. Because he wears a mustache yeah. very well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the musical ends. He is one of three people who applaud when it's over. <laughs> And backstage, Madeline is worrying over her aging. Oh no, wrinkles. And she uh, she's told that she's got visitors, so she arranges herself on her chair as gorgeously as possible. Why, it's Goldie Hawn and Bruce. She is old friends with Goldie, Helen. And Bruce, Ernest, is her famous plastic surgeon fiancé. So... Helen is trying to become a writer and she and Madeline have known each other since they were little girls, they were best friends and then they fell apart but they kind of stayed in touch uh, fun thing about their three names you put them in order as on the poster and they are Madder and Hell Oh, because they call each other mad in hell all the time. And I was yeah. like, okay, I, I get what you do in there. But yeah. And Ernest yeah, in the middle is being... Er, mm, hell. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There you go. You, you get the joke. So Helen has been trying to become a, a writer. And Madeline is clearly interested in Ernest for his job. So she shows up later mid-procedure one day to take him to dinner. <laughs> uh, he raises one bloody hand to wave at her. <laughs> she's showed up with two champagne flutes and all kinds of... She's in pink. She's stunning. She's over the top. Well, Helen finds this out and she is livid. It turns out that Madeline is a serial man-stealer. And specifically, only from Helen. Right? So Helen had set yep. up to for Ernest to meet Madeline so that he could potentially pass the Madeline test, which is if you can meet her and not fall for her or be stolen from, from me by her, then we are meant to, you know, to be together and we can get married. Yeah, she says she specifically did this before marriage. Yeah. And Ernest assures her, nope, it's totally fine. It was just dinner. Smash cut to Madeline and Ernest are getting are married. And Helen is devastated. <laughs> I, I was spoiled for this smash cut by a podcast that I listened to. And I'm really disappointed because it is a fantastic joke cut. It's so good. Seven years later. Okay, so, quick warning here. Oh boy! 
we're about to get into a whole bunch of fat phobia. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, one thing I will say about this, though, the fat suit that they put Goldie Hawn in, it's actually really good. That's what I was thinking, too. She looks incredible. I can't see any seams or edges or anything like that. She still looks no. like Goldie Hawn. There's not like, that it's weird... not the whale. Yeah, there's not that weird seam that forms around like the edges of an actor's face where the suit is trying to be blended into their face. No, this this looks incredible. But of course, um, yeah, she's got this great like she's got this. She carries herself in a completely different way. Goldie Hawn, obviously, like physically fantastic, but you really do feel that this is obviously it's done for the joke of look at her. She lost her man, and now she's fat and ugly, and nobody loves her. Um, but I, <laughs> it is a really good fat suit. <laughs> It's a really good fat suit. And and I it's that ah, I'm of two minds about this. This is great, but it's also fat phobia. But it's also great. It's so much better done than basically any other fat suit I've ever seen in a film. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like it's Zemeckis. Of of course he did the best fat suit we've ever seen. God. Ugh. Anyway, she's surrounded by cats, and she is sadly eating cake frosting out of a, a can because, of course, that's what a sad fat person would do. I didn't see what it was at first. I just saw her, like, scooping stuff out of a container with her fingers, and I was like, this is a weird texture for ice cream. <laughs> also, my fingers would be so cold. Ooh, drippy drippy. Well... Her landlord is pounding at the door in order to evict her while she watches a film starring Madeline and Michael Caine. <laughs> yes. As, as she is killed over and over again, even rewinding the death scene one last time as she is being taken away because she wants to see Madeline dead. Uh, masturbatory is the way I would describe this scene. Ooh, good word. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. I all. I think the, this is just a great scene. It, it's just... A, it's a shame of the fat phobia. We could have done without that. She could have just been like, you know, bad wig, haggard, looking real tired, surrounded by mm -hmm. cats. But they decided fat suit's the way to go. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this movie exists in a world where there is a robust social net because after being evicted, she is put into mental health care. Yep. We're in group therapy. <laughs> she's, she's asked by the therapist, what would you like to discuss today? And all of the other patients around her eye her up and down, just waiting for it. And she slowly says... I'd like to talk about Madeline Ashton. And they all start losing their shit. It turns out she's been there for six months, and it is the only thing she ever talks about. Uh, Deborah Jo Rupp is in this scene. She's one of the fellow patients. She's Kitty from That 70s Show. Uh, a person I always love to see. Same here. Good for you, Deborah. Oh, 
Anyway. Mm-hmm. It's her, a shame she didn't have a bigger role. Anyway. Yeah. Her therapist takes her off to the side and finally gets to a point of just yelling at her. All right. She, she's just like, you've been here six months. You, nothing's changed. You are the same person who came in and you are obsessed with Madeline. You have to completely eliminate and right at that <laughs> sentence, Helen goes, you're right. I do. And it shocks her into a state of something. We're not quite sure. Anyway, another seven years later in Beverly Hills, we come to Madeline and Ernest's mansion as a maid brings Madeline breakfast as well as tickets to Helen's book release. Turns out Ernest hasn't been sleeping in the same bed as his wife for a while now and has fallen asleep on the floor of his man cave. I hate that word so much. And is woken by the... Yeah. I I did... I was in a thrift store a couple months ago and I saw a sign that said woman cave. And um, and I was like, oh, I don't usually call my woman cave that. And ever <laughs> since then... <laughs> <laughs> you say man cave, I hear bussy, you know? <laughs> You say potato, I say potato. You say you tomato, say... I say bussy. <laughs> oh. oh my god. Anyway. Uh, he's woken by the maid bringing him a Bloody Mary. And we could basically just infer from that. Oh, he's a big old alcoholic now. This is Yeah, he's got the DTs. His... He doesn't work as a surgeon anymore because his hands shake all the time. Mm-hmm. Madeline and Ernest cross paths on the way out and they quickly snipe at each other. And yes, he's fallen out of plastic surgery and into corpse preparation for funerals. <laughs> I love all of this corpse stuff in um, in the various morgues. It's, it's, I, it's the styling and design of it. I think it's incredible looking. Oh, there's just so much fun happening with this film of, you know, what what can we get away with in terms of just kind of ratcheting up the opulence in the weirdest places as well? <laughs> L'Hôpital Beverly Hills. Meanwhile, Madeline heads to a spa to get as much work done for the party that they're going to that night. And the attendant at the spa warns her against some procedures because she's already had them done within too short of a time frame. But Madeline throws a fit and insists she needs the extreme and that money is no object. Well, a doctor suddenly appears in the room with them. And I do mean suddenly, like the, one, the, the attendant she's with moves and he's just there. It's, it's, it's really mm-hmm. cool. And he gives her a card for a very select group from Liesel von Rumen, which she tears up thinking he's a weirdo. Yeah. That night at the party, which is much grander than Madeline anticipated, Ernest is talked to by a previous client's family about how good her aunt looked when she died. And he reveals his secret to making them look Alive. Spray paint. Yeah, because makeup doesn't work on dead bodies, he says. 
And he's very proud of his innovation, and she obviously freaks out on finding that her her beloved memory of her dead aunt is just she was covered in shellac. <laughs> you know, shellac is still made from ground up beetles, right? Oh, it's like that one red dye. Yeah, it's just we haven't found a process to synthesize shellac, so we just farm beetles and then grind them up and turn them into to painting things. Oh, I do not consider myself a queasy person, but I would like a vegan patio, please. <laughs> uh, is your patio vegan? I shan't be stepping on it then, thank you. <laughs> So Madeline and Ernest see Helen across the room and she is stunning. Oh my god. She she's dressed like Jessica Rabbit. Oh god. Yeah, absolutely. Which makes absolute sense, you know, Robert Zemeckis and both of them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this beautiful body hugging red dress. And Goldie Hawn was forty six when she made this movie. Uh forty six She looks incredible. Forty six in nineteen ninety two as well. So, yeah, this is like us finding out that the that Joan Crawford was like fifty four, and we're like falling to pieces, disgusting. (laughs) Well, Madeline can barely bring herself to see her, Uh, but they trade barbs in the form of pleasantries, you know, saying what sound like nice things, but are actually absolutely devastating. And Helen says she doesn't blame Madeline; she blames earnest for leaving her because ultimately it was his choice right well helen then sneaks off with Ernest for a heart to heart with him while mad and madeline spies on them and this is where helen tells Ernest that she doesn't blame him for leaving she blames madeline because this is a pattern with madeline mm-hmm well, later at home, Ernest watches Madeline leave for her rendezvous with her young man. But it turns out he's been sleeping with someone else. Someone younger. Someone she we leaves. never see, but has a great butt. Great butt. Well, she leaves in the rain, because of course it's going to rain, upset after he tells her she needs to find someone her own age. And finally in the he road says that after... they look ridiculous together. <laughs> she almost causes several car crashes as she drives just through the night in Beverly Hills. And uh, finally stopping in the middle of the road, she digs around in her purse and finds the card she was given. Over at Helen's place... So you... Yeah? Uh... <laughs> I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you know how uh, Beverly Hills is famous for its enormous Transylvanian castles? Uh, Yeah, all those cathedral-esque mansions lying around. Yeah. But but for now, let's go back to uh, Ernest and Madeline's place. Well, this is at Helen's place. We see her preparing to cause a scene at Madeline's house. As she is surrounded by cut up and destroyed photos of Madeline. Oh no, Helen is still cuckoo bananas pants and hell bent on destroying Madeline. 
Yeah, she's practicing the lines that she's going to say to Ernest later. And what exactly is she? It looks like she's like spraying stuff into her eyes. Is to make? Is it to make her cry? I I think it's to water her eyes up. You know, to get that extra. Mm. Oh my goodness! I simply had to come at once. Well, Madeline pulls into the driveway of this cathedral-like mansion, as we were saying before, in the storm, and is greeted by a bare-chested man at the door, dressed like an old-time circus weightlifter, for some reason. (laughs) Uh, One of these guys is Fabio, but I couldn't tell you which one. Uh, Fabio doesn't show up until the end. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you get the idea of what these guys look like. They are Fabio-esque, they all have the long, flowing hair, bare chests, and... I mean, they're not my type of guy, unfortunately, because these are more, you know, romance cover novels kind of kind mm-hmm. of guys. Yeah, the, the the safe sexy for the the housewife at home kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This house is opulent as fuck. Like, oh my god, holy shit. Look at this place. And Madeline is led to a settee where another beefy boy is sat and in struts Isabella Rossellini as Liesel and she is wearing a sarong and a necklace and that's it how how do we begin to describe Isabella Rossellini in this film Uh, you were talking about Famke Jansen last night and uh, I think it's something like that, like this raw, raw nerve of sexuality. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just this wild thing that she's got side boob and under boob and front boob. All of it's happening at the <laughs> same time. Mm-hmm. And she just oozes power and charm and great it's it's just like somebody walked up to Isabella Rossellini and said um would you like to embody every powerful thing about feminine beauty and she went yes absolutely <laughs> she she's absolutely incredible in this i understand why i had seen images of her in this movie so so often before watching it um it is also like if you came into this not knowing that drag queens love this movie <laughs> and you laid eyes on Isabella Rossellini and you're like, yep, it all makes sense now. She's so stunning. She's got a fuck it bob. <laughs> and, oh, it's just everything else that is in these scenes kind of melts away because every time she's on screen, you have to look at her. You've got no choice. She's right there. Yeah, she she reminds me a lot of, um, with her bob, she reminds me a lot of, like, silent film stars like Theda Barra or something like that, where they're like, oh, a, a, a powerful sexual woman? All of our hats are going to flip right off our heads. But if anything, she, she's, she's the thesis of the film, right? What would you do for this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. The the um 
the thesis of the movie doesn't make sense as much without having Isabella Ronsolini just like owning the fuck out of this role. Yeah, if this was a man, it wouldn't be the same. No. But I, then again, I don't think anybody else was ever considered for this role. I, there's a fact that, like, we, we've seen the DVD covers and whatnot, and it's the, it's Meryl with her head turned around and Goldie with the big hole in the stomach. But that's the European poster for this film. The American poster <laughs> for this film is Isabella Rossellini's sort of cleavage and the vial between her breasts. And then it's just three Ooh. headshots at the bottom of Meryl, Bruce, and Goldie. There, there, there's a good reason. You should, you need to look it up. You absolutely need to look it up. Okay. Because it's, it's just stunning. So. Huh. While they're chatting about this, Isabella calls Madeline out on what she fears. She fears dying. She fears aging. She fears the natural laws. And this is a sentence that will come up over and over and over again. The natural laws. Meanwhile, Helen shows up at the front door in the rain, begging Ernest to see Madeline. I, I simply must speak to Madeline. And she barges in, looking sultry as anything, doing her best to seduce him. And he is putty. What I, a drip. I, I know. I also just love that Bruce Willis, guy who's generally been known for playing strong men, you know, he, he had just entered into his action star phase after being in Moonlighting, where he was, you know, a whip-smart private eye and still a strong man. And here he is a weak man, an unbelievably weak man. Yeah, I think um, it's really interesting because despite it being such a comedic role, um, I, I think it's interesting that he agreed to to do this when he was... I mean, it was 1992. He was a very powerful star. Um, and sadly, a lot of a lot of actors won't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, for fear of, oh, but what if this changes people's perception of me? And it's like, bitch, you're an actor. That's what actors do. Yeah. Anyway. Back to Liesel and Madeline. She continues to fawn over Madeline and yells, Screw the natural law! Damn it, Johnny, you know I love my big beef and cheddar. Okay, guys, there's the timer. Those of you who set your bets about when the first of us was going to quote Isabella Rossellini in 30 Rock. Collect your winnings now. So she opens a small chest and presents a potion asking, how old would you guess I am? And she reveals that she is 71 years old. The potion will stop age in its tracks and reverse it, keeping the drinker young and beautiful forever. Madeline asks, how much is it? And then balks at the price, which we never get to see, which absolutely fine mm -hmm. because yeah, we all have that price in our head that just seems outrageous. And if we saw it, you know, half the audience would say, eh, that's not that much. 
Yeah. So it bugs me prove... that that films do this, but it really is the best solution. It just yeah. feels so filmy whenever they do it. But she does sultrily like burn the note up afterwards, just to be like, "Well, nobody needs to see this now." So, in order to prove her point, Liesel stabs Madeline's finger and drops a bit of the potion in it, which not only heals it, but causes it to become youthful once more. At which point, Madeline. Says, oh yeah, there's also a, a cool bit where this potion is in like a little vial with a a, a sharp pointy end at the bottom, and it stands up oh, yeah. perfectly when she puts it down. It's just another one of those things where you're like, God damn it, how are they doing this? Like, you didn't have to do this. But you did mm-hmm. do this. And we appreciate it. This could have been just like yeah. a round potion bottle. Ooh, and it just sits down nicely. But no, instead they were like, what if the what if the whole thing was just magic as fuck? Yeah. So good. Well, her hand turns youthful. And she looks at it and she compares it to her old one. Looks at Lisa and says, check okay? Fine. Oh, it's a great exchange. The singular stipulation of the potion is you get to live young and beautiful publicly for the next 10 years. But when that time is up, you must retreat from the public eye. I retire, stage your death, whatever it takes, you got to go. So Madeline downs the potion and is given one warning. Take care of yourself. And then the, I think go go ahead. Then through movie goddamn magic, we see yep. Madeline de-age in front of us. And it is worth every penny put to screen. Because holy shit. Holy shit. Because some of this is really obvious, like her butt and her boobs become higher and tighter. And you're like, okay, that's just like, that's very easily just like underneath the actress's clothes. But they also do a face morph on Meryl that is perfect. It's so good. Now, do you know how they did the boob lift? Uh, I I assume there has to be like a special, a special uh, bra with like... (laughs) thrusters so originally they had designed a pneumatic bra in order to basically Mm -hmm. lift and push together but they found it was clunky and it didn't quite work as well as they'd hoped so what Mm -hmm. what this effect is is it's somebody from like the costume department standing right behind her hands (laughs) on her boobs just shifting them (laughs) up into place that's perfect you know it's, what? The old ways are the best ways. They did the old uh, Janet Jackson cover. It's so good. It, it just makes perfect. How they did the ass, though, that one amazes me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh, man. It's it's beautiful. It's, it's a perfect kind of scene of just like, here's some movie magic. Enjoy. Not to mention the fact that Meryl Streep is looking in a mirror as all of this happens as well. There's tons of mirrors throughout this, and I didn't notice them half the time because he doesn't draw attention to it. It's just um, 
it's basically a doubling down on how good the effects are. That he's like, oh yeah, we're gonna throw a mirror in this shot too. So you, your first thought of how we did this, no, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Well, back with Ernest and Helen, they are making out, and finally he's like, no, well, I want to be with you, and I, 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 I should divorce Madeline, and she says, divorce in California. That's exactly what she wants you to do. You have no talent for poverty. No talent for poverty. What a line. Also in like this huge, huge house that apparently he paid for because her acting career isn't going very well. It's like anybody would love to live on half that money. It's just the, the, the lines delivered in this film whoever wrote the the specific ones that really jump out you gotta think good for you holy shit you you understood exactly who these women are and what kind of shit they'd say this dynasty level crap you sent me a video of um a drag queen is i forget how to pronounce her name um performing to this and it feels like the sort of thing that was designed for drag queens to lip sync to yeah, so it's it's Thorgy Thor performing, you know, a, a sort of mashup of a bunch of different lip syncing scenes from this film, who then at the end of the number throws herself down a flight of stairs. <laughs> she really goes for it. She does. Oh gosh. So Helen convinces Ernest to kill Madeline via drugs and a car crash and then says after she's gone you can start all over again I can start all over again we will be so happy and he agrees I want to say too while there's um while there's while they're planning this there is a shot of um Meryl Streep like falling face first into her salad right in front of my salad um, at dinner because she's been poisoned and the camera draws back down this long long table through candelabras to reveal Bruce Willis and Goldie Hawn sitting very happily at the end it's another one of those shots where you're like god damn it Zemeckis you did not have to go this hard this is a comedy film yeah this is a silly comedy about divas but nope no, he's a professional. Yeah, he did the goddamn shot from Wings. <laughs> yeah. So Madeline returns, and Helen slips out before she's noticed. Madeline is confronted by Ernest, and as she walks away, he calls her cheap. And she cannot live with that. Robert Zemeckis also loves a character hating one specific word. Marty McFly hates I was just about to say that. This is Marty McFly and Chicken. All right. Uh, And Madeline hates being called cheap. So they have this argument at the top of the stairs where she calls him flaccid. 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 And he begins to choke her. And as he's choking her and and she's slowly dying in his hands, he comes to his senses and he lets go. But this leaves her teetering at the edge of the top stair. You know, and she begs, pull me back, please. Like, I'm on the edge here. I'm about to fall. Hurry up, you wimp. 
and he gives her a singular push with a finger down the stairs and we watch her fall and break everything. <laughs> and it feels like, like she falls for five minutes. It's great. I gotta say too, like I, I have, <laughs> you might have guessed campers that I have issues about like um, domestic abuse and stuff like that, watching it in film. Um, it's handled so well in this movie. I, I never, I just, I'm able to just enjoy the comedy of Bruce Willis choking his wife. Well, because it's it's shot so comedically, right? She's she's mm-hmm. kind of begging in between gasps, but at the same time, it's so clearly like she's acting, you know, oh, please, mm-hmm. please, don't, please. And then finally, when she gets upset of like, I've been teetering on this edge long enough, calm the fuck on. Oh, it's so good. And then Ugh. watching her fall down the stairs, it's not like a long shot of watching a stunt actor. No, we get to see her head smash into a stair and her neck snap in half under the weight of her body and on and on and on and on to the bottom of the stairs where I guess either they have a contortionist in a Meryl Streep mask or they have an incredible dummy set up to just be her mangled corpse at the bottom. It's great. I will say the animatronic that they made, um, they said it wasn't very good. They said it, you know, it wound up looking creepy and that's why they had to do CGI. I think that the animatronic was fabulous and I bet that they used, if not that, then like similar castings of her for pieces like this in the very final scene. Mm. Oh. Well, he rushes down to check the body, but she's dead. And so he rushes over to a phone to call Helen because now he's so excited. Like, oh, I finally did it. I, I, I just I just killed her. And, you know, we can finally be together, honey, and it's all going to work out. And Helen is fucking furious, saying, like, you fucked the plan up. This isn't what we went over. She you gave him dumb. one job. One job. But the great thing about this shot is we see Bruce Willis sitting down, (laughs) talking on the phone the whole time, and way in the background we can see Madeline's corpse slowly begin to pick itself back up. This isn't a split diopter, which I actually really appreciate for this, because we need the blurriness of the out of focus. As she picks herself up, she kind of twists a bunch of parts around and she starts to stagger back towards him and it's not until she comes into focus that we realize her head is on backwards my ass this is the thing I about Zemeckis when he <laughs> when Zemeckis is working the idea of having her out of focus in the background so you can have either a contortionist or Meryl Streep or just have it be CGI of her putting her body back uh, in the correct configuration it's it's out of focus so you know they could have done whatever they wanted it's really not important how they achieved the effect but the funny thing is is it serves the comedy to have her out of focus in the background it's it's perfect it, it really is a big idea right I you could just imagine so many other directors deciding to cut back to the body reassembling itself 
or just having the jump scare of oh oh here she is and she's back and oh no her head's on backwards but Zemeckis sat there and went it'd be even better if we could all see what's happening while he's discussing it and then trick the audience into thinking oh yeah she's just gonna walk up and everything's gonna be her head's on backwards it also teaches you the rules of this um, zombie reanimation whatever you want to call it existence that she's in Yeah, in that, like, time is frozen in her body, but damage is not mm-hmm. frozen. Yes. So, she manages to turn her head back around after a lengthy scene of watching Meryl Streep trying to walk backwards and achieve things <laughs> around this living room. It's so good. It's so much fun. Just it's- this... It's so, so funny. Um, When I was watching the the behind-the-scenes footage of this again, uh, she's just staggering blind, literally backwards in heels on marble. And I'm like, oh my god, (laughs) beloved national treasure, Meryl Streep is going to fall and really break her neck shooting this scene. Yeah, just, it's, and she sells the disorientation of walking forwards and backwards at the same time. She knows the direction she's heading in, but her body isn't doing the right thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, so good. <laughs> well, she manages to turn her head back around, and he rushes them to the hospital, where a doctor, played by Cindy Pollock, welcome, uh, checks her out by bending her wrist very unnaturally far back to check for pain. <laughs> And freaks out after seeing that her neck has bones almost protruding from the skin. Oh, She's also, broken multiple vertebrae. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go on. Also, she has no pulse. Her temperature is far below normal. And, oh, guess what? She's essentially dead. And this kills the doctor from shock. All of the set dressing of this very bougie, ritzy um, hospital is very fun. Like, it has, like, fancy wallpaper up everywhere. Um, And I really enjoy just how much of it is pure set dressing, and you don't have to pay attention to it if you don't want to. Also, I looked it up because he says her temperature is 80 degrees, and being a Canadian, I'm like, I have no idea what that means. Her temperature is 27 degrees Celsius, which is, like, a warm summer's day. (laughs) Her temperature dropped fast. Yeah, that's that's not where a human body should be. No. Uh, well, she faints, and Ernest rushes around to get help, only to return to her missing as she's been presumed dead and taken to the morgue. The morgue? She'll be furious. There are so many just quotable <laughs> lines in this. I've written them. I've written down a bunch. So, just be happy I did that. Be happy for me. Again, Bruce Willis is not getting the glory in this movie, but he is doing a lot of work, and it it really is good. So he rescues her from the morgue after passing a group of floating nuns. Don't quite understand what that was about, (laughs) but it sure happened. Yeah, I think it's just meant to to signify the weirdness of this, this hospital. Yeah, it is real weird. 
And he believes that this is a divine sign, that they are meant to stay together, and that all of this is a challenge from God for him. Uh, the, this morgue, when I talk about the design of the morgue and of this hospital, for example, this morgue has a skylight. <laughs> and, uh, and as he says, it's a miracle! And, uh, and thunder and lightning crashes behind him. And I'm like, aw, I get what you're doing. How did, how did people at the time not understand what this movie was doing? Yeah, it, it's, it's so right there. And Bruce Willis pulls off this manic look when he says it too. He, he's got this thing where somehow he's making one eye much smaller and the other eye much bigger than what they should be. Mm-hmm. Well, they return home with Helen waiting outside to sneak in. And he drags Mar Madeline's corpse out of the car. So Helen still thinks Madeline's dead. Like she's dead dead. And so she, <laughs> she manages to sneak in by doing some gymnastics over the gate. And then Ernest gets back into his car, takes it around the roundabout almost runs over Madeline. He doesn't see her. Almost runs over her. And this shot, I was like, Jesus Christ. Terrifying! How, how did they pull this off? Because the wheel is inches from Goldie Hawn's face. It's we, like, even with a stunt driver, even with multiple people, even if I had a monitor in the car, I would not trust anyone to do this to me if I were Goldie Hawn. It's there's, it's just there, one of those shots again in this movie where you're like, what the fuck? And the movie just continues on blithely. Yeah, the there's got to be a movie magic here happening here. There is no way you would put Goldie Hawn in this life-threatening situation. And it's not like it's a stunt double either. There's no cut. We see her go down. No. We see the car back up right to her face, drive away, and she gets back up and walks away. I also, because there there is a twist coming up that has actually been foreshadowed already by something that she's wearing. So I fully expected the car to just run over her and that it was going to be another special effect. And, uh, and even expecting that, seeing the car stop is just shocking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. God. Uh... Anyway, uh, she follows the car and him, and it turns out he's heading to his practice in order to pick up embalming supplies. So uh. we, we cut to Ernest spray-painting Madeline to make her look alive again. Because now that she, she was in the morgue for who knows how long, she's uh, taken on a rather gray flesh tone. <laughs> yes. If you call for me tomorrow, you will find me a grave man. Yeah. He even goes to far, so far as uh, as he's trying to fix her up, he, he goes, the highlights of your eyes are completely unbalanced. Do you want people to stare? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite things in real life is seeing somebody who really knows their shit talk about something. Whether it's like, you know... Oh, those great YouTube videos where it's like an expert safe crate 
Nutcracker talks about heist movies or things like that. I I love this sort of shit. And just seeing Bruce Willis shift from like beleaguered alcoholic schlumpy husband into this man who is devoted about his work is so much fun. As he is wearing a kiss the chef cook uh, apron covered in paint. And blood. And blood. Yeah, because uh, one of the things as he's spray painting her is an enormous uh, jar that is now filled with Madeline's blood because he's had to replace all of it, right? Mm. Because that's what he knows. (laughs) So as Ernest rushes around the house, he runs into Helen, who is broken in with supplies for disposing of a corpse. Helen calls him out in the hall but what she doesn't know is that Madeline is alive and watching. And after... Now this is a split diopter. It looks great. This, this one is a split, but it's worth it. And after uh, Helen calls her cheap, Madeline scratches down the post using her finger to... Oh, I, I love that. I always love Leaving that. gouges in. Yeah. Oh. I always love a character like gouging on something out of fury. So, uh, Madeline comes down, proves that she's alive, walks off, grabs a shotgun, and unloads it into Helen's tummy, sending her careening into a pond. I would have loved to have seen this scene, um, not, not being spoiled for one of the iconic images of this movie. It it would have been incredible. Oh, the shock of finding out that Goldie Hawn will now spend the rest of the film with an enormous hole in her midsection. Can you yes. imagine? That's that's why the, that's why the American poster is better because it doesn't show us what happens to these women. It just has the mystery, yeah. right? Yeah, it's funny actually. I have the uh, the IMDb synopsis open in front of me, and the poster there is in fact the uh, Isabella Rossellini one that you described. So, Ernest is now freaking the fuck out about the potential for jail, and Madeline delivers the line, "Ugh, you're so negative. Can't you for once let me just enjoy the moment?" This film was made for drag queens! Made for drag queens! Ugh. So she blackmails him into silence and getting rid of Helen's corpse. While they prepare, Helen stands up with a massive hole in her stomach. And I mean massive. This thing's huge and it's so well shot. Uh, I know how they did it, and I bet if you were an expert, you would say, like, the effect in Shaun of the Dead 12 years later was done better. Um, but I think this is just, it's so good, and you never you never see the edges on it, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you if you know what you're looking for, you can see, like, the, the remnants of where they've taken out blue screen and stuff, and, you know, but... The, the filmmaking's just so good you don't want to look for it you just go cool giant hole in the tummy mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just so good Madeline finally figures what's up 
and they call each other out for cheating to remain beautiful. <laughs> and then and then they start fighting with the shovels that they were going to use to bury each yeah. other. I mean this oh. and this shovel fight is pathetic. These are not action movie <laughs> kind of moves. Because if you made this movie nowadays, these two women would suddenly be like shovel kung fu experts. You know, swinging around mm-hmm. and doing cool moves and shit. No, they're literally just hitting each other's shovels. They're not aiming for each other's bodies anymore. They're just sort of like overhead smacking the tops of the shovels together over and over again. <laughs> and they spend the whole thing just bitching at each other. While uh, Ernest kind of goes, oh, what the fuck is happening? What is my life? Now, the best and see, part about this, this is part. why this scene. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, real quick. The, the thing about this scene is I think it completely dispels any assumption of um, misogyny in the film itself that oh this is just about women fighting over a man no the shovel fight is not about them fighting about Ernest at all both actresses know this the filmmaker knows it this is why Ernest is crumpled up in a ball not doing anything interesting because he doesn't matter it's not about him it's about each other yes that's all it, like he could be anybody he could be a car he could be a house or a painting <laughs> or a, a rubber ball they both very much enjoyed as children this isn't about him it's about what they mean to each other mm-hmm. so now we get to the piece de resistance of this shovel fight madeline breaks her shovel looks at the remaining stick in her hand and decides this will work as a javelin too. Throws <laughs> it at Helen, and it sails straight through her stomach hole into the couch and lodges itself in the couch. At which Madeline goes, "Yes, I mean no." <laughs> Looney Tunes. Meryl Streep is playing Looney Tunes in this movie. <laughs> It's such a perfect piece of acting where you go, yeah, I got it through the hole. Fuck, I don't want it through the hole. I need it in her. (laughs) (laughs) So Helen bashes her head into her torso, causing her neck to get more and more loosened. So over the course (laughs) of this movie, like Meryl Streep's neck just gets harder to look at (laughs) and finally through this uh, shovel attack it all comes out (laughs) there there you go it all comes out that Madeline would steal Helen's boyfriends because Helen always thought of and treated Madeline as cheap and now that they've finally got it out, now that they've aired their little laundry from when they were girls, they've made up. Yeah, they're so going to be friends throughout the rest of the movie now. Yeah. It's so really they... it's really nice to see. Female friendship. Who would have thought? Yeah. 
they go back upstairs to apologize to Ernest. They've made up. They're best friends again. <laughs> and he wants to leave. One thing I will say about this this part as well, them opening the door and having their shadows cast across him and there's still the big open hole where the light's coming through <laughs> in Helen's yes. stomach. Perfect. Zemeckis, you got it. You understand this assignment. <sighs> what happened to you, Zemeckis? Uh, well, he wants to leave. He's done. And I understand that. <laughs> but they can... Convince- yeah, he has kind of a realization that he's been wasting his life. Uh, no, I trying to save this horrible marriage. I, I think it's also coupled with two horrible zombie women are fighting over me. I need to get out of here <laughs> before more corpses or potential corpses or potential not corpses show up. Mm-hmm. Well, they convince him to stay to fix them up and his one condition is that when he's done they will let him go and never look for him again. And they agree. Except once they get fixed up, they realize that they may need touch-ups over time. So they make a plan to drug him and take him to Liesel so that he he can take the potion. And that way he gets to stay with them forever. Right? Foolproof plan. No downsides here whatsoever. He'll be on board. And and the two of them in this folie de are like, we have come up with a great idea. Oh my god, can you imagine that we didn't think of this before? When he's immortal, he'll have to keep us young. There's these great details with, like, the paint peeling off of them and stuff, and chunks coming out. Oh, it's so gross! So, they drug his drink, but he's given up drinking, so they smash him over the head instead. Yeah. (laughs) He wakes up by a pool as Liesel swims nude wearing only a scarf because of course she is she's that cunt <laughs> Fabio is I mean she scene. also comes out of the of the pool after doing the backstroke with her hair perfectly dry because that's just what Isabella Rossellini looks like yeah that that, that is what she would do that is how she looks like <laughs> Isabella <laughs> Rossellini she offers him the same option of the potion, even doing the same hand-stabby thing. And she says to him, You are like Don Quixote, tilting at nature's windmills. And right before drinking, she says something about the natural laws. And immediately he goes, No, I can't fight against the natural laws. And he runs off, pocketing the potion, and right into the party where you know Andy Warhol and Elvis and Marilyn Monroe are all in attendance <laughs> there's a great callback too because she'd said previously that uh, that Greta Garbo was one of her clients and there she is um, I think it's also um, I think it's nice that the film never actually comments on the fact that of course Ernest doesn't have the same desire for the potion that uh, that the women have because he doesn't need to be concerned about the same things that they are. Um, the film never draws attention to it, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. 
while Helen and Madeline spot him and decide to follow as he is chased by Liesel's guard dogs onto the roof. He makes a daring climb across the roof in order to try and escape, but slips and falls, his, his uh, suspenders getting caught on a drain pipe. And Helen and Madeline reach out to try and save him. But they're just too far away. So they say, Hey, you still have the potion. Drink it. That way you'll fall to your death, yes, but you'll just pick yourself right back up. And everything will be fine. And he's just about to when, of course, as they're saying, come on, drink it, drink it, please, come on, do it for us, do it for us, come on, just do it. And he finally realizes, oh no, I will be stuck in hell forever with these two. And he drops the potion (laughs) and then he plummets as well through the glass ceiling of the pool that he was just at, and he's totally fine. <laughs> he's also confronted uh, by Jim don't, Morrison. Don't think about it, guys. Don't think about it. Yeah, Jim Morrison's about to go for a swim as well, and he just he runs right by him. So he finally manages to escape in James Dean's car. You know, the one he died in. And... Helen and Madeline are convinced by Liesel to go and find them. So, you know, they, they, they go back to the mansion to, to see if they can find him, and they notice that they're peeling, and, you know, this, this doesn't quite last forever. This is a whole scene of Meryl licking her hands, trying to stick stuff to her boobs, and it's just Ugh. not working. And they say, okay, well, you know what? You touch up my ass and I'll touch up yours. And this will be great. We'll be, we'll be fine. Everything will be fine. And you can see the realization dawn on them that they are now stuck together forever. 37 years later, in the far-flung future of 2029, I'm actually really thankful <laughs> that Zemeckis didn't say, like, let's make this shit futury as fuck <laughs> yeah are, that's a good point I never I never actually thought about that because this yeah. does take place after the events of Back to the Future Part 2 in the Zemeckis verse <laughs> we are at the funeral for Ernest who went out into the world and made it a, beautiful, a better place he adopted children he had a wife, charities, AA clinics, marriage counseling all these kind of things that he put out into the world to make it a better place. And he lived. He really lived. He went around the world and and hiked and climbed mountains and shit. And, yeah, the priest uh, says, uh, Ernest found the secret to eternal life. And we go, Abu? And it's like, and it's living on within the hearts of all of his friends and family. Oh, okay. And this is where we find... Helen and Madeline sitting way in the back by themselves laughing their asses off at this funeral. And Sam, also what do they look like? Well, we don't quite see it because they're wearing black veils while they're in the church. But once they leave the church and they're alone, they pull those veils back to reveal faces. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So it looks like they've been putting on makeup with a trowel. At one point, um, Meryl says, you're going to need some Bondo for that chin. Do you know what Bondo is? 
Uh, yes, I do work with carpenters. Oh, yes. Yes, of course you do. <laughs> I make movie uh, sets, But Sarah. I was like, just... <laughs> but just the idea of something like, we're going straight to Bondo level <laughs> makes me laugh yeah, so hard. We've, we've moved so far beyond conventional co- uh, adhesives in order to keep ourselves together. This is what we've resorted to. They They look like... They also look like they haven't ever washed off the previous levels of paint because Mm -hmm. all of it's like chipping and flaking all over their face. But it's also gotten to this stucco oatmeal-y place of like, oh, Mm -hmm. you've just been layering and layering and layering. It's Baby Jane all over again. Yeah, they... Oh, this is worse than Baby Jane. And uh, on top of it, they can barely move as human beings either. Like They're walking down the stairs and Meryl's doing this weird thing with her legs where she's kicking her feet out to each side. (laughs) But uh, they they get into an argument as to where they left the can of spray paint that they use for their faces. (laughs) At which point, uh, Helen takes a step and slips on it, leaving her teetering on the edge of another flight of stairs. And just as Madeline is about to push her down it, Helen grabs her. They both careen down the stairs and shatter into a whole bunch of pieces of people. And as their heads spin on the pavement towards each other, (laughs) Helen looks Madeline in the eye and says, do you remember where you parked the car? The end. the end end credits what a great what a great end there's also this uh, fantastic sound um, of like a bowling ball rocking as their heads move towards each other <laughs> it's great yeah you kind of get to see inside of their bodies because they're now in a bunch of pieces and it's gray mm-hmm. in there it's like a gross rotty gray and that's not a color humans should have I feel like as we describe this, if you haven't seen this movie and haven't seen these effects, um, what we're describing sounds a lot more horrific than what is actually on screen. Um, I don't think this is... I mean, it's technically categorized as a a horror film in one of its subgenres, um, but this is not nearly so, um, like upsetting it is grotesque but grotesque in the whatever happened to baby jane way um yeah i i fucking love this movie i'm so so glad i had a reason to watch it yeah like you were saying it's grotesque but it's grotesque for the sake of comedy right like like Shaun of the dead has zombies (laughs) in it and zombies are you know scary and grotesque but they're grotesque in a funny way so it's fine you don't feel icked out by Shaun of the Dead. And the same thing here. Like, you may feel icked out more about, like, stuff peeling off of their bodies. Right? That's the gross mm-hmm. part. Not the, oh, yeah, they've shattered into a million pieces. But beyond that, yeah. Sarah. Sarah. Is Death Becomes Her camp? Yes. Yes, it is. It is camp. It is queer. It is camp. It is queer. 
I I oh. was honestly holding off for the, about the first third of this movie. I'm like, oh, Bruce Willis is kind of camp, but the actresses aren't. And then, holy shit, does this thing ramp up? What we didn't get to is is really discussing, like, what what this movie means in a queer lens in terms of like body dysmorphia, mm. right? So let, let's yes. let's unpack. I, that I think for a there's second. a really yeah, I think there's a really strong. Um, transition theme throughout this as well of taking something that others warn you against and think turns you into something grotesque but you think you find yourself more beautiful than ever yeah yeah oh i i could i can definitely while while i am not a trans person uh i i definitely have these same kind of reactions from people because when you say to people hi yes i am very much training to become a pro bodybuilder of the Olympia level, people go, well, I remember when I first started saying that and people were like, well, girls don't like that. Joke's on you, first off. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also like, you know, I'm not, it's the, um, you know, I don't like men with too many muscles. Well, I'm not making this for you. Exactly. So I get it. I'm doing things to myself to make my body the way that I want it to be. Right, and I I understand the uh, euphoria that comes with it because boy howdy do I like what's happening. I just wish my brain would catch up. <laughs> yeah, that's something about like um, uh, gender euphoria as well. Of this is something that you have always wanted, and that you are finally seeing what you feel your true self is reflected back to you not to mention the fact that this is just um this is a very fun movie with older women which you don't get a ton of and (laughs) queer people love older women i didn't get it when i was a teen and then you and i are aging and we're like yes joan crawford give me my joan crawford (laughs) i'm like oh this just this just happens in the body yeah i i would watch so many films like if it was just older women doing cool shit Give me action film starring nothing but older women. I, I mean, I also want action film starring women. But can you imagine just old women killing people, the movie? There, t- there comes a time in every little guy, gal, and non-binary pal's life um, when they look at Christine Baranski and they're like, you know what? Evolution has peaked. We don't need to move beyond this. Yeah, nobody can have a nose that is more ski slopier than hers. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But as for me, ask me the question, Sarah. Go ahead. Samuel, <laughs> is death becomes her camp? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> the fact that drag queens love this movie maybe not all of them but you know a good portion of them that this is quoted that you know staircases and neck breaks are a thing that we can look at and be like oh, remember that staircase remember that neck broken right as you were saying <laughs> the movie is a horror movie but it's a comedy first and foremost and the comedy comes in and says well, what if I play the horror this way? And it does it. It does it so well, right? 
Bruce Willis is camp as well. I think this is probably his campest role. I can't really think of anything else. Maybe the audio. I mean, I can hear Katie Beth yelling at us about Hudson Hawk, but I would agree with you. No, no. Hudson Hawk's great. Yeah, we, we both love that. But his role in that is still very straight. You know, it's just that he happens to be in a world of ridiculous things happening. Here, he is a worm of a man. He he is playing, he's the only man I've ever seen play like a Madeline Kahn role. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 You could gender flip this to a Madeline Kahn easily. Mm -hmm. That's very good. I can't believe it took me so long to watch this. Um, This should be in regular Halloween rotation. Like this, it should be like. Rocky Horror, Ghostbusters, Death Becomes Her. It feels so um, comforting in the way that, like, big, glossy Hollywood movies of our, of our childhood often are. And I don't see why this isn't better regarded. I think uh, time, ironically, has been very kind to this movie. <laughs> This movie has aged very well, unlike the horrible things at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have anything else to say about Death Becomes Her? Or are we going to uh, waddle off only to shatter into a million pieces as soon as we turn off our mics? <laughs> uh, I, I feel like the need to shatter. I'm sure there's so much more to talk about and we could be here Forever talking about it i i will say like the aging makeup of meryl streep again when she when she's older and then she becomes younger i was like yeah that's just what meryl streep oh my god no that's what meryl streep looks like bravo, right? <laughs> bravo. make makeup team deserved a million oscars for this it got the vfx oscar it also deserved a makeup oscar yeah it's it's just incredible, and if you guys have not seen it, uh, I think this is the one one of the episodes where we are ending with a very hearty recommendation to go watch this movie. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining us today on our exploration of Death Becomes Her. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice, leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes, and next week, in week two of Spooky Month, we will be discussing Friday the 13th, Part 7, a.k.a. The One with the Telekinetic Girl. (laughs) I have never seen a single Friday the 13th. I've seen quite a few. Uh, I have not seen Mm -hmm. this one. Because just just the way it happens sometimes, right? Um, and you know the, the the thing with long-standing slasher franchises, for the most part, is that you've got hills and valleys. When it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's awful. You know there are ones that you look forward to seeing, ones that you go genuinely. I think this is just good, and others that you'll watch and like. I love watching this. I know this one's shit, but. I just enjoy the dynamics that happen in it. This one was the studio, originally the studio wanted to do Freddy versus Jason. This was going to be that movie. 
When did this movie come out? This would have been early 90s. Or okay. late 80s. Late 80s, early 90s. Uh, so first there's that. So they couldn't get the rights to Freddy. And basically they just scrapped all of his parts and turned it into Telekinetic Girl instead. This is the only character in the fucking franchise who has like magical powers outside of Jason. <laughs> really? And it's so never it's like, explained. Instead of <laughs> instead of Freddy versus Jason, they did Carrie versus Jason. Yeah, but she's also she's not evil. She just has telekinesis. <laughs> they were like, yeah, what if what if he faces a telekinetic girl? It's like, sure, why not? And uh, also as a heads up, uh, so most of the Friday the 13th films take place in a literal chronological order. The first film is on set on Friday the 13th. The second film is set on Saturday the 14th. And so <laughs> on and so forth. Every once in a while they will jump ahead and say like, oh, it's Friday the 13th and a bunch of kids were killed at this camp and blah, blah, blah. But they'll do these the next movie like the day after so <laughs> you you end up with weird time jumps back and forth but you also end up with this film taking place in 1995 and then Jason X taking place in the far flung future and it's just t- time's real weird in this series continuity doesn't matter people get replaced all the time Corey Feldman was in one Kevin Bacon was in one there was an, a movie where the entire cast, it turns out that everyone they hired as the teens were actually queer in re- real life. And so they were all fucking each other. <laughs> oh. Oh. But all you need to know I'm <laughs> going into this is that Jason was a kid at Camp Crystal Lake and the counselors yep. were fucking and, and doing drugs, which caused him to drown. I, it goes back and forth as to whether he was special needs or not, but he drowned. Mm-hmm. And the first film, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, you think it's Jason killing the counselors. It's not. It's his mom who's hell-bent on revenge for letting her beautiful boy die. Then the sequel introduces him as the killer, and then he dies, and then he comes back. It turns out he wasn't actually dead. But then later he actually does die, and he comes back to life. But then they kill him again. And then he's replaced by a guy pretending to be Jason, but he dies. But then Jason comes back in another film as, like, now a a super zombie. I think this one, yeah, he's dead, he comes back. Maybe because of goo. There may be goo involved with this one, in terms of him The Secret of the Ooze? Yeah, kind of. Kind of, actually. And then later on, it turns out that uh, it's it's not, like, lightning, because lightning brought him back once, or magic ooze that brought him back. It turns out that Jason is in fact an evil worm from hell that burrows from body to body and possesses them in order to kill people because hell stuff. (laughs) But then that's retconned away because nobody cares about worm Jason. Man, you want to talk about messed up continuity? Friday the 13th is the place for that. I'm excited to dive into this. Like I say, I've I've never seen any of this. I've never seen any of the Halloweens. I've never seen any of the um, whatever the Jason series is. Um, this is the Jason <laughs> coming series. in at part seven. Coming in, at, 
Uh, what's the Freddy one? Night Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, Nightmare on Elm Street. There we go. Um, yeah, I see. I can't even tell them apart. Um, I'm excited. I think coming in at part seven is going to be the perfect introduction for me. <laughs> Great, perfect. That's all you need to know. And you, our audience, our campers, can continue the discussion on our Twitter and Blue Sky and Instagram at the same handles. I am at Chris Indigo, all one word, R H Y S, spelled the Welsh way. And I am at Sour Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. Bye! Sarah. Oh, shit. Sarah. Sarah, I'm teetering around the edge of this this staircase. Sarah. Sarah, quick. Pull me back. Sarah. Sarah. Hurry the fuck up, you wimp. I'm not dead. Not too calm. No, not the way you do it.